The Home Show. With Colour Trend. Bring home Irish colour with Colour Trend paint. This is News Talk. You're very welcome along to The Home Show with me, Sinead Ryan, coming up on the show this morning. Going, going, gone. I'll be speaking to one of Ireland's biggest auctioneering firms to hear how the migration to online auctions has gone and finding out how you can do it. Shipping container homes, are they the silver bullet we've been looking for uh, to solve the housing crisis or are they more of a white elephant? Well, architect David Treneman joins me to give me his thoughts on that. Speaking of unconventional building solutions, ghostwriter Sue Leonard will be stopping by to chat about her writing room in her garden. And of course, we will have Roisin Murphy talking about 15-minute cities. If you'd like to get involved in the show today, then you can text us here at The Home Show at 53106. That'll cost you 30 cent. Or email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. You'll find me over on Twitter at Sinead underscore Ryan and on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100. So many ways to get in touch. So don't uh, don't miss out on any of them. But for now, you are very welcome along to The Home Show. <laughs> Now, I was writing during the week in the Indo about one of my favourite walks and it was one I rediscovered because of COVID lockdown and it's the long, windy trek from Sandymount Beach out to the Poolbeg Lighthouse. It's very bracing, it's very long, but it is marred by the dreadful state of the Poolbeg chimneys. Now, anyone in Dublin knows you can't pass an art shop or a tourist shop without seeing everything from candles to tea towels to the, you know, pictures with the famous stacks on them. And we feature them here on the home show, actually, in the past. They're as iconic a site as the Spire or the Hapenny Bridge. But in real life, they are faded, unloved. They're in a desperate state. They're owned by the ESB who said that they want to protect them themselves. They don't want them going on a protected register, but they haven't. And there's been talk of making a tourist attraction out of them, you know, building a sky bridge, having a viewing tower, all that sort of stuff. But like even painting them would be better. Now, the council had to step in when they were threatened with demolition a few years back. So I want to know, what do you think? I mean, they can polarise people um, because either you love them or you, you hate them. And while we're on the subject, what attraction in your local area creates a love-hate divide? Sometimes I think we have a tendency maybe to hold on to things because we can't bear change, uh, not because they confer any iconic status. But for me, Poolbeg candy-striped chimneys are a beautiful thing. Am I wrong? Text us 53106, email us at com. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and you're very welcome. Now, like so many other businesses, auction houses have had to migrate online in order to keep things on the road during COVID. But what are the challenges involved and how does it actually work for the most important purchase of your life, which is your home? Well, Colm O'Donnellan, managing partner at O'Donnellan and Joyce Auctioneers, joins me now. Colm, you're very welcome along to The Home Show. Thank you very much, Sinead. Now, you are probably, I would contend, the best known auctioneer uh, in the business for, for homes. You've been doing this a long, long time before COVID came along and you're based in, uh, in Galway. Yes, Sinead. We, 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 we've been auctioning properties down here in the west of Ireland you know, for the last 20 years. And I suppose it always has been live auctions. We normally hold them in a hotel here in Galway City. We could have two to 300 people pre-COVID, which would be in the room 
bidding for the properties, you know, and we could have 40, 50 properties at a time, you know. Wow, okay. So well, let, things let me, have changed. Let me start with um, a kind of contentious uh, view because I suspect there is an urban-rural divide with auctioneers because in Dublin, for instance, like you would only see the grandest of houses going for auction, you know, the really posh ones up on Kalini Hill or somewhere. Do you think that in in more rural areas, kind of you you get very standard properties, kind of cottages and two or three bedroom bungalows? Do you think there's a kind of a different sentiment towards yeah, auctions versus the estate agents? Are, are probably more used to auctions, used to the process. You know, prior to I suppose the, the, the crash, right? O'Donnell and Joyce, we used to just auction really prestigious properties, and then of course everything collapsed. You know, the collapse of the Celtic Tiger and everything changed, and then we changed the model completely. We started to sell properties which were lower priced to try and find exactly what the price of properties. Nobody knew what they were, but we knew there were people interested in properties at the lower levels, and they're the sort of properties we started to put into the auction rooms, and that's what created the interest and the dynamics of the O'Donnell and Joyce auction. Do you think that um, people believe, they, or do they, get a better price at auction than they would from an estate agent sale? When an auction goes on and when a property goes under the auction hammer, once the hammer falls, the deal is done. The contracts are duly signed. They're not subject to engineer supports. But the people have to do their due diligence prior to the auction. Sometimes the sellers win, that they get a premium price more than they anticipated. The other times the buyers win because they get a price, it just goes above the reserve price and they're very, very happy with the price they've achieved. You know? So it, you know, it's, it's a market, it's an open market where people come, buyers and sellers come together right? and you, you're selling your property, you have what's called the reserve price, which is the minimum price you're prepared to accept. But once you achieve that price, you're on the market to the best price that's available. Mm. Now, you were talking there about due diligence. And, uh, you know, when you're buying maybe a plate or a picture or something, you know, like you can do your provenance and all that beforehand. But when it comes to a house, uh, if you are going for an auction, because I'm conscious maybe people only do this one time in their lives. What do they need to have done before they get into the auction room with you? The big thing, Sinead, is right with the auctions, right, is that you must check the property out prior to the auction day. Now, for all O'Donnell and Joyce's auctions, the houses are open viewings. We invite the public to come and look at the properties for about four weeks prior to it. We are always advising people, go and check it out. Be very, very clear of what you're buying. In addition to that, in addition to that, we have all the documents up online. All the contracts are there so you can check everything prior to the big auction day. Now, Colm, from your perspective, of course, if a buyer arrives in the auction house, you're going to want to know that they have all their financials in place. So how does that normally work out? What do they need to have done? Well, the people have to make sure that they have the money. We emphasise to people, do not bid. Please do not bid unless you have the money, because once the hammer falls, you have to put down 10%. You put down 10% and a contract must be duly signed. And that's what has to happen in any auction room. Now, about six weeks later, the sale would close. In other words, we'll be looking for the money. If you don't have all the money, you will lose your deposit. Mm, okay, well, that's a cautionary tale then for people setting out. So they have all their homework done at their end. They've had their kind of surveyor in. They've had to look around the property. They've made a decision. But on the other hand, their responsibility is to have all their stuff in place. How has it changed with an online auction? Because, I mean, you know, you can imagine the frenzy of an auction room, people sticking paddles in the air and going over, getting overexcited about properties. Is it different online, Colm? 
Well, it is totally different, but what we did at Donald and Joyce, right, we transformed our model. No longer is there a large audience in the room because we obviously with COVID, we couldn't have people in the rooms anymore. So what we did, we just transformed it completely. We brought it right back into our office. We have just one large room in the office and there's only one person with me in the auction room. That's all. And there's a TV camera in front of me and it is basically what we have done. We've coordinated with brand studios and we stream it live. Anybody can watch the auction. So you're watching me conducting the auction and interacting with the clients who are bidding. The biddings are coming in online and on the phone. All our staff at O'Donnell and Joyce are up on the screen. You can see them. And as the phone, the bids are coming in, right, they're bidding there on the screen and it's live for everyone to see. And it's interactive as well. In other words, I'm conducting the auction. Right. I'm, I'm thinking, though, like anybody who's ever done a Zoom meeting throughout COVID, and that's everybody pretty much, mm-hmm. um, has had moments where their line has gone down, their picture has frozen, something hasn't been said. What happens if you're mid-bid when that, when that happens? I suppose that is a nightmare scenario, you know, that, for instance, if one of our staff would on and Joyce, their phone and they're on the phone and the phone breaks down, that is the worst thing that can happen. You know? <laughs> and I suppose that is the downside of technology, you know, that uh, that can happen. It can happen, you know. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's much better if you're in the live room, you can, you're can you avoiding all of that. But, you know, obviously, in the circumstances and the period of time that we're in, uh, this is the best way forward and it has really, really worked well. Has it? it? Has okay. really worked well. Have you noticed an uptick now in sales? Because obviously, 2020 was a, let's all forget that year. But this year, there, there's absolutely much more movement in the property market. What have you witnessed now uh, this particular year in terms of, of volume and um, sales going up? We've had seven major auctions since COVID has started, you know, and it's all, as I say, interactive online and phone bidding. And we have been shocked with the amount of interest. They shocked the amount of sales we've had and the amount of interest that we have through the entire process, you know. It really is a changing market. It is, to be honest with you, it is a seller's market, mm. especially for areas like urban areas like Galway City. Any of the properties that we've had in Galway City I, have been totally sold out. We have a 100% success rate on properties we put up for sale by auction in the Galway City area. Wow, okay. So then I'm going to ask you, because there was news during the week, column that um, half of those people who have registered their property tax, their local property tax returns, did so in the bottom two brackets. So all of the houses were worth less than 252,000. Is that your experience? Well, <laughs> I put it this way. If you're in an urban area, right, the properties are worth more than that. You know, if you're out in the rural area, it is different. You know, mm. it depends on the location. It's all down to location, location, location. Mm. You know, if you're in a prime, obviously, location here in a city in an urban area, it's obviously worth substantially more than that. Right. So all the people returning their property tax so far must be in those rural areas. There's no other no other uh, explanation for that. Uh, now, Colin, give me some tips on what uh, a seller could do to maybe make their house more attractive for auction uh, to prepare it to make sure that it goes for the best price. Everything is about presentation. That's the key to it. You know, walk into a house that's clean and tidy and well presented. It makes such a difference. If you walk into a house that's grubby and, you know, the whole place is untidy, that puts people off immediately. Mm -hmm. And it really, we'd often say to people, listen, don't start changing kitchens. Don't start changing wardrobes. Don't start doing any of that work. It'll just have it clean and tidy. It may need to be repainted if it's very, you know, if it's, it's dowdy or whatever. But that's the only thing we would suggest to people. 
really presentation was what it's all about. Now, when it comes to uh, auctioning off your home as opposed to an estate agent, are the costs different? So what do you get? How do you get paid and what are the general we percentages? Paid, uh, uh, we get a paid a percentage, right? The standard percentage is 1.5% plus VAT. It's the exact same as a private sale. Mm-hmm. There is no difference whatsoever. The marketing costs are maybe a little bit more. That's all I would say to you, you know, because you have to market the property extensively. You know, what we do is we put the properties out there in the open market Right, but we advertise the property both locally, nationally, and get as many people in to see the property as possible. That's the key to the success of an auction: is getting the. You have to get numbers through the door. Sure. And that's what we do for four or five weeks prior to the auction. We try and maximise the amount of exposure to the property to get as many people in that door as possible, so to create the interest. And that's what it's all about. Now, um, there was a, a time when well over half of all sales. Uh, at auction where where cash sales in other words there was no mortgage needed to back it up do you have a sense of where that is at the moment uh, mortgages uh, are coming back into play there's no doubt about mm. that you know mm. uh, mortgages are coming back into play but again you have to be organized that's the thing with the auction process you know you must have your you must have your mortgage in place so you have to be 100% sure that there is no issue with your mortgage if you come to bid at an auction. Yeah. So it might, might favour the cash sale, actually, or the investor. It always does. Yeah. It always does, yeah. you know. But it's always down to price, you know. I mean, that's what the key to everything is, you know. It's down to the price. How far will a cash customer go? He may not go any more than a mortgage buyer. It depends on the property. Have you had any surprises this year, Colm, in terms of houses that went for far more than you had thought they would? <laughs> Oh, we have had that. Every auction we have, we always say there's about two or three star performers, you know, who go way above what's expected. And it's just really what you have. You may have three or four people competing with each other and they may have deeper pockets than others, you know, mm. and that's what happens, you know, and the prices are pushed beyond what we anticipate. However, on the other side of it, I'd have to say to you, there are times when we just get about the reserve price and that's it, which is the minimum price the client was hoping for. Yeah, and so I suppose some clients might be a bit aggrieved by that. Maybe they, they think their yeah, special, you, lovely kitchen they stuck in two years ago will increase yeah, the price. Yeah, there, there are times when clients obviously go into put it into a for sale, no matter what sale you put on, and they're, they're disappointed with the price. They would have anticipated more, and it doesn't happen, you know. But say we have what we call a minimum price, which we print, and people are aware of the minimum price. That's what's called the reserve price as well. And once that's on the market, we the buyer can't change his mind, but either can the seller. So mm. it can be a win-win situation. Right. Okay. So you are taking a risk, but at least everybody is on the same playing pitch. It, well, you know what the price of your property is. You're saying we will come to you and say, listen, this is the price that you're going to achieve. This is the minimum price you're going to achieve. But once you hit that price, you're on the market to sell it to whoever's the highest bidder. Sometimes, right, obviously in an auction room, there's a frenzy of activity and it goes way above expectations. And I suppose that's what everyone's hoping for. I'm sure that it is, is ex- except is the buyers. For, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So- <laughs> that's what the person who's selling the property is always hoping for. The buyer is the opposite. He wants to buy it for nothing. That's always the way. And the seller wants to get as much as possible. Indeed. All right. Well, listen, uh, Colm O'Donnellan, thank you so much for joining us on the Home Show this morning. Managing partner there of O'Donnellan and Joyce Auctioneers. And when's your next auction, uh, Colm? Our next auction is on the 19th of November. All right. Well, people can go on your website, have a look at that and see the properties if they fancy something down the West. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sinead. Nice talking to you. Thank you. Now, I'm speaking with Colm O'Donnellan, Managing Partner of O'Donnellan and Joyce Auctioneers, uh, based down in Galway. The Home Show. With Colour Trend. Bring home Irish colour with Colour Trend paint. This is News Talk.
You're very welcome back to The Home Show. I'm Sinead Ryan. Now, if you're just tuning in, we got some tips before the break for selling and buying a home by auction. If you want to listen back to that, you can do so on the News Talk app on our podcast, which is powered by Go Loud. If you'd like to get in touch with us this morning, it's 53106 for 30 cent, or you can email the show at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. Now, many of you will have seen in the news during the week that by 2023, the average home buyer will need an income of €90,000 to buy an average house in Ireland. It's a stark reminder of the difficulties facing thousands of people around the country right now and it doesn't look like things are going to change anytime soon. So there's lots of creative solutions being sought to, you know, people thinking outside the box, trying to find a way of living differently. And one of the ideas, the kind of wackier ideas that has come out, is the notion of converting shipping containers. So we thought we'd get an extra look at how that might work from an expert. Architect Derek Treneman of Ciardine Architects joins me now. You're very welcome to The Home Show, Derek. Uh, thank you, uh, Sinead, and uh, it's great to pass our knowledge to your listeners. Now, um, you are one of those people who has actually successfully converted shipping containers. Do you think they're part of the solution to the housing crisis? Um, well, we've definitely converted uh, shipping containers and done a lot of different type of quirky projects in the past. Um, you know, it is an exciting place to be, but I wouldn't be 100% confident that it would be an ideal solution for solving the housing crisis. But it does pose some questions that we can explore um, in the ideas around prefabricated homes. Mm. Now, they are kind of ugly to look at from the outside, but if you w- were going to convert it for a living space, what kind of space do you get with it and how would that compare with with modular homes that are already available? Well, shipping containers come in different sizes. You have 20 foots, uh, 40 foots are the most common, and sometimes you have 45 foots and 30 foots. And then they come in a range of different heights as well. So you really have to make sure you get high cube uh, containers um, so that you get the maximum height that you can achieve uh, so that it doesn't feel too low and squat. Um, The containers also can be quite narrow in their width. And that's something you really have to consider when considering how you're going to lay out your home. Mm. And do you think they're suitable for living in? I mean, you know, if people buy one, I presume they can do so quite cheaply and and convert it, which would probably cost less than buying a property. But I mean, it it immediately strikes me the one thing that you have to think about is the climate in Ireland. I mean, they're tin, are they? Iron? Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're a construction block. If we consider it that way, they're no different to a concrete block. It's a prefabricated metal form. Um, they've often been about the seas uh, quite some time before uh, someone might buy them on the cheaper end. A brand new shipping container, you know, would be a significant cost. Um, secondhand and, you know, containers that have reached the end of their life generally have travelled around the world for over 10 years. Mm. And, you know, they would tend to be a little bit beaten up. So it's certainly not a case of putting them there and being watertight straight out uh, there's often quite a bit of work you would need to do to the container itself before you can start to consider um converting it but like everything it can be converted and it can be made into a compliant home yeah but i mean like everything else you're going to need a water supply a heating supply um insulation in it is it is it economical to do it 
um, you know, as I, I think they would be a very similar cost to standard construction. So you really have to love the idea of a shipping container home to build a shipping container home. Um, you know, a lot of people would call us uh, thinking that this might be the solution to a cheap home. Mm. Uh, it is an off standard, uh, you know, construction system. It, it's not uh, the norm. And therefore, it's very hard to find uh, traditional contractors that would be open uh, to that type of uh, form of construction. But I think it does open the question to prefabricated homes. Um, there is a solution there. I think it's the uncracked nut in the housing crisis. Um, and I do think other types of prefabricated structures um, are, are definitely uh, cost alternatives. At the moment, we're building prefabricated schools, we're building prefabricated offices, and they're all up to traditional building standards with mm. very lifelong expectancies. And I think um, if there was a mind shift in uh, consumer uh, purchasing of homes and equally a shift in how planners consider uh, temporary buildings or prefabricated buildings um, in the rural countryside, they definitely could be uh, an, an option and containers could have a place in that as well. Now, I remember, oh gosh, it must have been at least two years ago or more that I interviewed whoever was the housing minister at the time and this whole thing of building modular homes was being touted as kind of the be all and end all. These brownfield sites, the state already owned them, we were going to throw in modular houses, they were going to cost a fraction uh, of the cost of houses. It just never got off the ground and it turned out that some of them actually cost more than if you were building a set of apartments or three bed semis. What do you think is the blockage um, there, Derek? Yeah, well, that, that's definitely certainly the case in the in the temporary or in the um, example that was built um, at that time. Uh, that particular housing was was really just a prefabricated type of housing, but not a prefabricated home in its true sense. You know, a prefabricated home would be a manufactured in a factory home, mm. and it would be con- completely built in a factory setting in a very sterilised, uh, controllable format. When we start to try build homes of prefabricated components on sites in a very, you know, uh, domestic traditional way in terms of, you know, semi-detached houses and, and attached houses and terraced houses, they're always going to bring all the complexities of just normal building. So we really have to change our mind shift in how we approach building houses from the start and consider them as a factory produced house uh, that is clipped or put together rather than uh, a house that that involves a lot of site work and site components. Yeah, it's like the Meccano set of housing, really. You build it elsewhere and off-site and you just kind of crane it in then. And, you know, job jobs oxo, it's quick. That's it, yeah. OK, well, listen, so it sounds to me then when it comes to the shipping containers, from your perspective anyway as an architect, they're kind of more like um, a pet project, a back garden, a kind of, a, you know... Home office kind of stuff. Is there is there a market for it there? Um, yeah, definitely for extra space. It's it's you know very great for a DIYer or a person with carpentry skills. You know, it's a starting module which is you know reasonably airtight and watertight uh, that can be added to and you know uh, can be easily insulated and put together. You know, it, it is just important to talk about. You know, there are physical and non-physical challenges with containers and prefabricated buildings in that. You know, from a non-physical challenges perspective, you know, we need to get planning permission and this can be quite a difficult thing um, across Ireland. 
Um, when we build these things, they absorb a lot of our finances. So, you know, if we're getting bank finance or going to rely on bank finance in the future, that can be often difficult to get for off standard uh, construction systems. Right. OK. As oh. well as home insurance. Yeah, uh, exactly. Insuring it. Yeah. Well, insuring yeah. it. Um, from a physical perspective, you know, the containers are usually not perfect. Uh, they're often beaten up uh, for years of moving around the seas. And, you know, each container, while you think it's the same, actually can be very different. They're they're made by different companies in slightly different ways. And that can be very tricky when you're trying to make it watertight or to put your external insulation on. Mm. And particularly when you combine the containers in twos or threes or stack them on top of each other, um, it, it can become a challenge to work through those details. Indeed. All right. Well, buyer beware is what I'm hearing there all over that item. Uh, Derek Treneman. Uh, architect and owner of Cardine uh, Architects. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on The Home Show. Uh, now, commissioning, designing and building a home out of shipping containers may not be the housing solution for all. But what about smaller uh, spaces, such as having the right space to do your work? Well, Sue Leonard, journalist and ghostwriter, has created a writing room in her garden and she joins me now to tell me all about it. Good morning, Sue. Morning, Sinead. I'm jealous. You should be. It's beautiful. <laughs> now, I've seen the pictures and this is a gorgeous little space in your garden. Why now did you build it? I mean, were you not working perfectly happily in your home up to now? I was working perfectly happily in my home when I was doing full-time journalism. Lovely little office space, but open plan to the house. And somehow when it came to more creative stuff, as in the ghostwriting, it didn't work as well. Now, I toyed with the idea of a shed because I've been ghostwriting now since 2010 for a while. But I didn't know whether how much I'd use it because I do use retreats. You know, I take myself off to Anna McCarrick for a week mm. when the deadline is looming and <laughs> launch in. And I use libraries and I use coffee shops to, to get away from the house to do that. And I just wasn't sure and I was toying with it for a while. But then COVID hit and I couldn't go to the library and I couldn't go to coffee shops and a bit of cash. And I thought this is the time to do it. Yeah. Were there, when, you were, when you decided then to build this pod, obviously you had the space in your garden. Yep. And were there any non-negotiables? What did you need to have in that space? Well, I, I, do, do you know, I was actually quite unsure as I was building it. And I needed obviously at my desk and I needed bookshelves. Other than that, I, I was toying with the idea of having a sofa bed so that it could then double up as a spare room. But since I've built it, it's very clear that it's just workspace and that's all it's going to be. And what difference have you found in your writing or your concentration levels, maybe, by being out of the house? I mean, Huge. it's what is it, 10 steps or 20 Ten steps? steps. Down? Okay. Huge. Really? Um, one thing, I have a gorgeous view over the valley, which is lovely. Okay. Um, it's not very distracting, though. You keep looking up and thinking, well, oh, no, I, I, I kind of, I, I managed to have it so I'm sideways on. So okay. I can look, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, huge. I'm back to doing the, you know, a thousand words in an hour, um, which which I haven't been doing. You know, I can write a thousand words in an hour, which I haven't wow, been able to do for, push, which yeah. I used to be able to do when I was throwing out features. Yeah. But it sort of, I got slower recently and uh, it's back to that. It's it's shutting the door. It is shutting the door yeah. and going to work. Isn't that it? And it just creates a different mindset nearly yep, for you. It really does. Okay. And, and is it warm enough? Yes. The one thing I would say to anybody, do not stint on the vet, the um, 
insulation. Insulation, yeah. thank you. Um, my daughter built one a few years ago and they did stint on that and they've since put it in because it was just, it didn't work. It was unworkable, really. So what did you do then in terms of uh, getting a par- somebody, a, a company or a partner to build this for you? Did you I have went a conversation to, about it or was it just ready-made and plonked on the site? It was ready-made and plonked on the site pretty much. But I did, you know, there's a, there's a showroom. I went for log cabins and there's a showroom in Stillorgan and you, that's, you pass it every day. I mean, I pass it every day on the road. So I was well aware of them. And occasionally I'd go in and have a look. They're not nearly as nice as when it's built yourself. I, I had Valerie Cox around actually looking at mine because she's thinking of it. And it's completely different when it's your own. It's, it looks so much nicer. So tell me then, OK, so it arrives in. All the structural stuff is, is, is done, basically, as we heard in the last segment. Yeah, a, a team comes in, yeah. a team of um, East Germans. They come in, massive amount of them the first day. And it's up in two days. It goes up in bits. The so whole it's like thing it's modular is modular and, and so there's nobody kind of building it's, it for it's, six It's weeks. from a kit, basically. Mm. But although they did change it because I, I'd chosen one that had the wonderful French windows on the side and the guy said to me, much better if you have them in the middle. And he put them in and he was dead right because okay. you then got two corners. I have a standing desk one end and a writing desk the other end with nice corners, you know. And in terms of then the decoration, the design, making it your own, how did you go about that? I went about that slowly. I waited till the thing was built, then decided what kind of desk I wanted and got a lovely sort of one like a table. And I went, I went for no clutter because there's so much clutter in the house somehow. Mm, mm. Um, and, and the fact now that and bookshelves are really important to me because I get sent 15 books a week. And because you're a book reviewer, as because well. I'm a book yeah. reviewer as well, and I interview a debut author every week, which I've been doing for 11 and a half years, which is 560 debuts or something so you can imagine that the house used to get really overrun with these piles of books and to be able to put them into their spaces straight away it's just again head is clear what did it all cost it came including the electricity now when you look at these things the basic thing is four to six thousand i went for everything i went for the best windows the top insulation the roof tiles the gutters and i got them to do everything their electrician their mm. painting and it came to under 12. Right, okay. So an investment but not beyond the bounds of Absolutely not. Okay. And and who did you use to to build it for you? Well, that's a company called Log Cabin. Okay. Yep. Well, that's very straightforward, <laughs> isn't it? They do obviously do what it says on the tin. Yeah. Any downside, Sue? Not that I found yet. No. I mean, even in the hot weather, it was cool enough. In that really hot weather, it was cool enough. I, I haven't need to, needed to use heating yet. I mean, I know we're only the 1st of mm. October. But you go in and it's this lovely, it's cosy and gorgeous. <laughs> oh, it's heaven. It is heaven. And uh, tell me now, your latest uh, book is, well, the latest one that's that come out. in the shed. <laughs> that I wrote in the, well, I finished in the shed, um, is with Ronan Smith, If Memory Serves Me Wrong, which is out with New Island. All right. Okay. Sue Leonard, ghostwriter, author, prolific book reviewer and now shed owner, <laughs> writing room owner, let's say. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on The Home Show. Thank you, Sinead. The Home Show. With Colour Trend. Bring home Irish colour with Colour Trend paint. This is News Talk. Very welcome uh, 
to welcome back, of course, our resident architect and designer, Rushi Murphy. You're very welcome it's to the studio, It's lovely Rushi. to be here. Now, uh, one of the things, yeah. first of all, how's the house going? You're all done oh, now. I've no, seen your Instagram videos. You I'm, must be nearly there. I'm nearly there, but I have to draft proof all the doors. We have the supply issues all over building materials, oh, okay? So anybody who's planning your building material, just be really careful. I have to do all the seals because, you know, and I have to put all the handles on the door yet. So we still have lots of drafts coming through. And, I'm, and there's a radiator for me somewhere out on a ship in the Atlantic. <laughs> I've one radiator Along in. with all the, the French yeah. windows and the doors yeah. and oh, all no, the this, other things. This that is people, it. it is yeah, desperate. it's, it's fascinating. But it's fascinating if it wasn't so cold. <laughs> Exactly. Well, it has that urban chic look at the moment. I'm that telling you. Like. Yeah. That concrete. Yeah. All right. Well, now, before we uh, start on, because I know that you have this big conference yes. during the week and you want to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, so before we do that, let's take a listen to this. <laughs> no. I took you for a metalhead. No, I'm not a metalhead at all. Guns and roses. Guns That's and roses. Paradise City. <laughs> no, I'm not a metalhead at all. But there you go. And with all that uh, hair, no, I thought you'd be rocking no, it away in studio. No, more, more Irish dancing <laughs> oh. than metalhead. But I do, I mean, I've, I have appreciated, uh, most of my friends absolutely adore Heavy metal, and apparently it is the, the most popular music in history. Yeah, we have uh, it's our it's our executive producer <laughs> Stephen Jordan's last week. I think he went a bit loopy on the whole is music this, thing. So we this is his choice. This I was worried about Gareth Everman. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, Paradise City. Now, he is that generation, why, young men he is, he and is, metal. Floppy hair. Why are we talking about this? And it's because of the concept of the fifteen-minute city. Yes. Now. I did a little bit of reading up on this because I'll be honest with you, I didn't know a whole heap about it. Um, so Carlos Moreno, a Paris-based yeah. academic, was credited with coining the term. He didn't coin the exact term, but he has championed it. Tell us what mm. a 15-minute city is and what you heard about it at your conference during the week. Okay, now you have actually talked about this before, but I won't, I won't, I won't check you. But yes, we have discussed it. A 15-minute city is famous because it means that all your amenities are within 15 minutes by foot, by bike, not by car, but car is part of it. Public transport, your hospital needs, your medical needs, your educational needs. And it is this idea of creating connected communities and the kind of, I suppose, thriving functional cities. So to prevent um, suburbia as such. But weren't we all, Mm. like, before we became what Ireland is now wasn't it always the case yes. that you lived in your little village and travelled in your village yeah. in your town you only went to the big well, market town maybe on one day a week I don't know I think I is think argue back to that no I don't think so I think if you think about the city is the machine for living in city is one of the most effective communities for human habitats and it's why there's been a kind of um, a depopulation even we only see it in turnarounds of great illness say the great pandemics the great viruses again with COVID which would push people back to the country but the market and business is done in the city it's where the infrastructure is whether it is drainage heating the market to eat all of that kind of thing but as time has evolved the city's got more and more complex all the humans are attracted to it and that hub or that we kind of tend to design radial cities Mm. or vertical cities where we're still all trying to get into the middle and we're all trying to pile up either high or outspread with public transport systems so anyway I can't I, so with that the 15 we become dehumanised there's a lot more stress there's a lot 
lot more. There's an incredible amount of grieving going on for local communities in communities, you know, within the city. A lot of rich people occupying city centres and the very poor, believe it or not. And then the dispersing and the two hour commute for people into mm. this place to do market. Right. So I cornered your man. I was there. He had a good talk. He was very passionate and he was just on the way out waiting to get a taxi. Who's this now? Carlos. I said, Harry, oh, hello, Carlos. How are you, Carlos? Because we didn't have times for Q&A. So I asked him really quickly because he's got the mayor of Paris to adopt this. OK, th- there's no doubt about it. This was a theory that everybody was espousing. But then COVID was the big breakthrough moment. He had gone to all the big uh, corporate giants and said, let your workers work remotely. We need to get people back to connectivity, even for urban planning. We can't keep piling into the city centre. It's causing uneconomical housing and we're all enmeshed in that problem. And he said, no, no, they said it cannot be done. He said it in a fantastic Spanish accent. <laughs> it cannot be done. So he said he went to them all. They all said it couldn't be done. And they said, Max, it would take six years to introduce all this sort of stuff. He said, then COVID happened. And he said, yeah. within six weeks people had all their 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 staff working remotely they had Didn't them back just, just I mean it's one of those there's very very few people who have a good news story out of COVID and there are very few yeah. good news stories but this has yeah. to be one of them No and absolutely and even in the RAI conference we were talking about it like we 1200 to 1500 people in attendance when we'd 450 people in the hall so there's lots of good things about uh, COVID but this is the particularly good story but he did say because I like it is all very interesting his the relationship between him and the mayor and that was one thing I was trying to tease out because there's no argument with the, the success of anybody who was living in their 5k if you were in a good neighbourhood with a nice park with lots of amenities that 5k you really felt we're alive you were happy there. to stay yeah, there you've butchered you've, you've yeah. the bacon yeah. the candlestick making people the park, loved the it the parks were full yeah. the kids were in the park um, now it was very difficult with schooling etc so that's his own problem but what he said what well, he's done this thing where he the mayor of park is the mayor of Paris is doing this okay and this is a big groundbreaking thing but then you actually get him into the corner of the room and you say, is this for all of Paris? Because Paris is actually one of these places that is vastly huge. Mm. It is a beautiful city and centre. And, and sprawly. And he said, no, that's the problem. And I said, OK, this is the major issue. Mm. And he, there's, there's, you, you need mayors for every suburb. Yeah. So what you need and what the future is, the 15 minutes is going to exist in Blackrock. It's going to exist in Ashtown. It's going, we have to kind of make cultural centres within suburbia. Yeah. And then what they're doing in Paris is they're introducing these radial trains that are basically all, now, like, and they did the first Houseman plan, which is this fantastic, incredible plan. But they're basically doing the same thing. Because nine, there was some mad quote from, um, and studies, there was, it was very interesting in the conference right across the, the board, but there was people uh, from London over, from Bolade, they're a kind of young group that are, and they're trying to do this thing, fabric first in housing, mm. and all the sort of sustainability. Mm. There's lots of issues to sustainability, but 9,000 people a year die in London from pollution. 9,000 a year yeah, and I was like going it's, isn't yeah, it? so there's yeah. a huge management the city really needs we need we, suburbia has happened so what we're still in Dublin in a way having an argument about height versus all these things what's clear is that's moot it was the other thing that was really interesting was retrofitting which is a big thing a big topic at the moment because we have 500,000 mm. houses we have to retrofit according to the climate uh, um, bill by the government but basically they're saying that um, retrofit is old hat yeah 
which was also really interesting. Right, right. Well, so, we will talk about that yes, again. Yes, we will sure, talk about because, because we know retrofitting is going to continue, and especially with the climate to action say plan that's just To say to people, you can go onto the RIAI website. They have all of the speakers online, so you'll be able to download all the stuff that I... I mean, it was fascinating. It's worth seeing if you're a fan of the city and future planning. I'd even say to the government, Dara Bryan, who's there, have a little listen. <laughs> Brilliant. He made All a good right. speech, but he, yeah. he didn't stay. No, always fascinating lineup of guests. Um, now, Roisin, um, another topic I wanted to talk about today, because it struck me, we have talked about when it comes to flooring and floor materials and materials in them, we talked about carpets extensively, mm. wood, loads stone, of times, stone, tiles, <laughs> all that kind of thing. The one thing I don't ever remember us talking about was lino. Linoleum. Yes. Now, is it ever, ever a good idea? Okay, right. <laughs> I wanted to get. Does anybody still have lino? No, okay, first in their of all, kitchens? lino is incredibly popular still. Is it? Yeah, but the thing is, the real, li- real lino is actually a thing called marmoleum, which is a ninety-nine percent recycled renewable product with incredible green um, credentials. Okay, it's made from wax and cork and linseed oil. Smells great. You used to cut into it to make these things called lino cuts. But then a vinyl is, the vinyl is the lino. What we know Mm. in Ireland is lino Mm. is a plastic material. So there is two kind of, there's two kind of strands. And then in between this is cork, which is making a huge comeback. Believe it or not, cork flooring and then also rubber flooring, which is Jura flooring, which is that kind of. These are all very popular products with underfloor heating because they're 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 very fast to heat up. Oh, and you feel I see. The heat of course, them. you get the insulation. But I'm thinking when I think about lino, uh, yeah. I mean, I did have lino. I think in my first house in the kitchen, but I hated it. It was but, because I couldn't afford to have anything better. But was it a plastic floor? Oh, it was, yeah, and it okay. curled up at the all edges, right. and it was yeah. never well, never clean. And it was always highly patterned for some reason. You couldn't, you know, it was well, hard to get plain. Pattern lino floor pattern is back. But, oh, the, but the bigger issue really is these marmolean floors. Now, the only problem with the marmolean floors is that it has gone, it, it's, rel- well, there's no real problem with marmolean floors, except I, like every, there was a click one that I was really fond of, which came, it was like a tile you could Very click into. Very popular. People yeah. love that. It's gone up to 50, it's gone up by 50% or something in cost. Like the mm. same thing of the pile on of the cost is coming in all these materials. But marmolean is still a very cost effective material in comparison to, for instance, a stone floor. But I, there was something about it. I suddenly was thinking, I, I mean, I have a, a love of these marble, but my, my remembrance of these floors was they required huge amounts of maintenance. You had the, do you remember the big polishers? There was three polishers and they're used traditionally in hospitals because they're antimicrobial. Now, not the vinyl, yeah, the marmolium. But see, they, that's what I think of. I'm thinking of bathrooms and, and hospitals yes. and schools and kind of the cheaper end of the corporate. Yeah, building. but they're very, very warm under floor. Yeah. They're also... I, I'm sticky, having, sticky I'm, though, having a moment, I'm having a moment. Oh, and you only think of the hospital. I'm having a moment where I'm going... I actually think I might fancy now my marmolean floor because I was thinking about the warmth of them. They're a thin layer, so you you know, and they're not they're, they're super relatively easy expensive. to keep clean though. I mean, that is one of the benefits. You run and mop over it. Yes, and you're done. Yes, so for kids, for for they're they're that adaptable pets. For, for pets, for kids, for allergens, and it's a renewable. It's a nice. It's a really good green floor if you're interested in your green credentials, and they're warm underfoot. Now you can get also you can get the vinyls though are incredibly cost effective and are coming out in more and more 
um, on what I would say is perfect woods. They look like okay, they pretendi, look pretending natural, pretending yeah, natural, right. but they act, they're like the ceramic um, tile floor. And the other thing as well is because if, if you're buying ceramic, okay, the thing these are we're all talking about sustainability and green stuff mm. at the moment, okay. Mm. Like uh, your average ceramic tile still has to be fired to a huge temperature. So everything we're talking about now is coming down to how it's manufactured. That was the other thing that came out of the conference actually was that these things called K bricks, which are compressed bricks. So you can now have a, and they come in loads of different colours. So you'll have compressed bricks floors so that thing of marmolium it's a more natural material and I mean it, do, it does need to up its game in terms of pattern though yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, you can introduce pattern and cut it to do different it, things see there's nothing worse I think than going for something that looks like something it's not so yeah. you know you could have somebody at a glance would say oh what lovely wood floors you have and then you step and go ah no. Janie they're no, really plastic I, <laughs> I know but then a plastic floor does have its applications it is they're getting better and better and for people who it just needs to, the plastic floors are no good in terms of green though they just aren't meeting no, the requirement really, really bad yeah, so we're yeah. going marmoleum rubber cork and marmoleum or linoleum but remember your linoleum is not a vinyl so lino does not equal linoleum. That's right. what you have to remember. OK, but there you go. Talking, you heard it here yeah. first, folks. Things you didn't know and already. Starting at around 20 euro per square metre. Yeah, it so is not a bad price. That's not a bad price. For a good and good eco product. Especially like maybe for a first time yeah. buyer, somebody starting off in their home or redoing. We were talking to uh, Colm O'Donnell at the top of the show, an auctioneer, and he was saying when you're putting your house up for auction, tidy it up. Don't spend an absolute fortune, but make it look clean. That would be a great solution. Yeah, it's a great solution. Well, the, the other thing, no, it's not a great solution to a quick fix. No quick fix. Think, guys, whatever you're buying, you're buying for a lifetime. Yes, yes, There's yes no quick, right. No, she's, right. she's going, yes, 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 yes. Move along, Roshi. Tidy up. All Tidy right. Tidy up that well, comment. one right. uh, thing that you do do every week when you're on is bring me an object of design. Uh, okay. And I must say, we got a huge traction last week uh, to the beautiful uh, uh bus that you brought Alwyn in Gillespie's of Alwyn Gillespie's yeah. and, and it turns out um, because Ireland is it's Ireland tiny. and Ireland is so small that the very man who the bust is of her son yeah. Finn um, it turns out works with me in the Irish Independent and there you go I never knew that uh, until he got in touch and his beautiful moments very much missed ah, uh, very yeah. much okay now what have you got for me this, this week? a book a book we love a book okay now this is she is this is Valerie Mulvan's book she has written a book all about the evolution of the Irish here. times it op- or Irish towns sorry it opens with a quote from um, Kevin Barry which is always a good thing because Kevin Barry for anybody who's interested he's a really good writer who talks so ah, evocatively but he writes about towns and cities in Ireland so this is the 15 minute city in picture Roisin. well it, it is a, the, it is an analysis of Irish towns okay now Valerie Mulvan and uh, her um, partner Neil who is unfortunately uh, departed? Ross, yeah, Alton Rye, Wexford, yeah. loads. Every but the analysis. She is one of the kind of game changers, and her husband Neil, or partner Neil, um, they were the game changers in terms of conservation in Ireland. Because and I'm going to say this: conservation in Ireland starts with a capital G and ends with an N. Georgian. That's what we, people talk about the Georgian quarter, this quarter. Mm. What they did was elevate ordinary. They made, they've already got a, a previous book that we all had as students, but they talk about the very ordinary like cottages. And again, they're trying to get us to look and to remember our towns. And it's a very important town for towns there's in Ireland. There's some here now. So Coleraine, there's a printer yeah. I'm looking at. It's the original map from 1622 yeah. and the geometry that applied to yes. these towns and how they were built. Exactly. And the history of them. And the thing that's yeah. fascinating is that one of the, there was uh, Claire McManus and David O'Dwyer also spoke about this, the, you know, the response to 
to the government's plan. And one of the big things is we need to get our small towns rejuvenated for housing costs. But this is a good book because it does connect you back to the kind of mad market towns and the history of how they were built. And also it, it makes you excited about the potential of, of in this new decade that we could get people remotely working in smaller towns and rejuvenate these towns. That's a, that, But the book is beautiful. Well, that would be yeah. actually a lovely uh, Christmas present. We're now we're allowed to mention the C word yeah. now. A lovely <laughs> Christmas present for somebody who's interested in all things um, the townlands and architecture and cityscapes. Yeah. So She's Valerie f- Mulvin, approximate formality, morphology of Irish yeah. towns. Now it My is goodness, an incredible read. I, reg- I mean, it's one of those very few picture books you like to read. But Valerie Mulvin's picture books. She, she's going. What are you saying? Well, she, she was a, she was a, one of my professors, so she had a huge influence on a huge amount of generations with her understanding of architecture Ireland. But it would make persuade you about the beauty of a small, the potential of living in a small yeah. town in it's Ireland. It's a lovely, lovely object of design. Thank you for bringing it in, um, and and anybody who wants to look you that can up, get that pop it up the, on your. Yes. On your Instagram, which is remind um, us, Roisin Murphy Architect <laughs> underscore between the Roisin and the Murphy and the Architect. It's very complicated. I'll put very up on Sinead Ryan one hundred on Instagram too, yeah. and people can have a look at that. And that is all we have time for this week, Roisin. Thank you so much for coming into us again into studio. And- <laughs>